Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. It is episode 122 of the podcast here on Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Happy Halloween, y'all, even though it's not Halloween for you. It is for me recording this podcast. I've got my Christian Pulisic jersey. I'm all decked out. But listen, it's not October anymore. It's November What does that mean, y'all? It means it is election season. Election day is right around the corner. The Tuesday next after the first Monday in November, as the Constitution says. It's not 2024. It's not a presidential year. It's not a midterm year. It's 2023. It's an off year. But that doesn't mean there's no elections happening. There are some very important races that we are going to break down everything you need to know y'all it is our factual 2023 election guide everything you need to know about election day in 2023 is going to be on this podcast in just a moment so you're going to want to tune in for that but before we get to all the facts just wanted to remind you all that if you like the Zaders facts podcast if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition. Remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, rate and review the podcast, check us out on all the socials, spread the facts, tell all your friends about the Zaders Facts Podcast and the Zaders Weekend Facts Newsletter, which is a recap of the week's top headlines. It comes out every Sunday morning. If you didn't know, it's free to sign up. Check it out in this episode's description and also check out the Zaders Facts link tree because it has all the Zaders Facts links that you need so I don't have to keep running down the list every podcast because you can go there. How about that? So, this week, our big main topic of the week on November 1st is elections. Y'all, I love elections. I love voting in elections. I've already voted this year, even before election day. How about that? No one cares. It is election season once again. Every November is basically election season here on the Zinner's Facts podcast. And for you too, it shouldn't matter what year it is. There's probably some elections going on. There's probably stuff on your ballot because. We don't have any congressional races this year. The presidential election isn't until next year. That does not mean, though, you should sit at home and do nothing. Election Day, y'all, it is this Tuesday, November 7th, less than a week away, which is crazy to think about because it feels like fall has gone by super fast. But it is this coming Tuesday. So y'all maybe remember last year, one year ago, the podcast we released, Number 81, Xander's 2022 Super Midterm Elections Preview. I mean, that probably gave you the greatest breakdown of last year's midterm elections you could ask for, right? Well, that podcast also turned out to be just a couple minutes short of being two hours long. Thankfully for you, and especially me, this podcast is not going to get anywhere close to that length, hopefully. I don't know. I hope not. I mean, I've got things to say about the elections that are going on this year. There's just not as many big-time elections across the country to cover this year. But we do have a couple that will be well worth your attention. Because we've got three gubernatorial elections that are taking place this year. Hard word to say. Two of them are going to be unexpectedly competitive. So that'll be interesting to talk about. And then we've also got a couple of states that are holding legislative elections that could show us 
how the electorate is feeling in the run-up to 2024, especially in one state. Y'all know which state I'm talking about. We are going to fully dive into Virginia's legislative elections this year, not just because I live in Virginia, but because a lot of people are saying that that could be the ultimate bellwether before we get to 2024. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but they're still important to take a look at. So we are going to do all that this week. And also, we've even got a couple of referendums that we should be keeping our eye on across the country. But also, because it is an off year, there's no midterm elections, there's no presidential elections, you know, because of the number of noteworthy races, polling and analysis is few and far between in many cases, meaning we've got a lot less data to rely on with these races. You know, remember last year, we were relying on a ton of polls, data, analysis, people, all that stuff. We don't have like a fifth of that probably this year. But you know what? We are still going to take a look at everything you need to know about the elections taking place across our great land, the United States of America in 2023 with the facts you will only find with Xander's facts. Let's do it. So let's start out. As I said, we're talking governor's elections, legislative elections, and everything else you need to know. But let's start out before we get to the legislative elections, because I think I might spend more time on those. Let's start out with the three states electing governors. Now, it is true that the year before a presidential election isn't exactly a time when especially meaningful and competitive races are plentiful, I guess is probably the word. You know, last year, there were 39 gubernatorial contests, 39 states were electing their governors, and there's only three this year. And listen, when I say meaningful, all elections are meaningful in one way or another. You just know that they're not typically meaningful to people who are trying to gauge an overall outlook or what the electorate is feeling right now. We don't have a lot of those this year, but we do have a couple big ones. And of course, if your state is electing a governor, that's a pretty big election you should be keeping your eye on. So three states are taking the spotlight this year. Those states are Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And you'd probably think it's it or really these states not exactly competitive statewide. I know what you're thinking. But in two states, you'd be surprised. So, but first, let's talk about one election that's actually already happened. I know, we're a little late. Louisiana. Louisiana is a very weird state. They've got parishes instead of counties. They do just want to be different. And also the way they conduct elections. So for statewide elections, Louisiana uses kind of a different system. It's a two-round system instead of the typical primary system that most states use. All candidates for a position, like governor, appear on the same ballot, doesn't matter their party. So, like, there's no primary for a party to decide who their nominee is going to be. All the candidates who have declared get on the first round of the ballot. And then in this first round, if one candidate wins 50% or more of the vote, they automatically win the election. That's what we know as a jungle primary, which other states also use. California uses this as well, which often in California, you know, because California is a pretty democratic state, oftentimes it leads to, if nobody gets 50%, it's usually, you know, the top two candidates advancing to the next round. And usually in California, that's Democrat versus Democrat sometimes. 
But in Louisiana, that's also true. If no candidate receives an absolute majority, there's a second round of the election that's held, although oftentimes it's not Democrat versus Democrat, which is also known as a runoff election. And that's between the top two vote-getters in the first round. This is true. Well, Louisiana actually held the first round of their election a couple of weeks ago on October 14th, which was a Saturday. Louisiana also holds their elections for statewide offices on a Saturday, which is kind of interesting, you'd think. That's probably better than a Tuesday, although their turnout was pretty pitiful in Louisiana. But also, it wasn't, you know, a national election day, so that might have something to do with it. But in the race for governor, the Republican candidate, the main Republican candidate, Jeff Landry, who served as the state's attorney general since 2016, got 51.6% of the overall vote, which means he won the election outright, which is actually a flip for Republicans in a state that voted for Trump in 2020 by almost 19%, because the previous governor, who had been governor since 2016, was a Democrat, John Bell. Edwards. Now, Edwards is a very Joe Manchin-style Democrat, I'll just say that. He signed a bill in 2019 that would ban abortions in Louisiana after six weeks. He's very moderate, pro-life Democrat. But the Democratic candidate who was in this race, because Edwards wasn't running, the state's transportation secretary, Sean Wilson, received just 25.9% of the vote, despite he got the endorsement from Edwards, the current governor, but he only got 26% of the vote. A lot of that was because there were a bunch of other candidates to choose from, but also Louisiana is typically a state that votes for Republicans. So Louisiana is also holding their elections for lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, and a couple of other statewide positions. The attorney general, secretary of state, and the treasurer elections are all going to be decided in the runoff election on November 18th, which is also a Saturday. How about that? But now, to the two states whose elections have yet to be held and should actually be pretty competitive, even though you wouldn't think so. They are going to be. Let's start first off in Kentucky, where current Governor Andy Bashir is running for re-election. Bashir is a Democrat who in 2019 took down then-Governor Matt Bevin, who was a Republican, by just over 5,000 votes. 0.4% in a state that the next year voted for Trump by 26% and Mitch McConnell in the Senate race by almost 20%. Bevin, although, was an extremely unpopular figure in the state at the time. According to Morning Consult, his approval was just 33%, particularly because of the teacher strikes that took place in Kentucky the year before the 2019 election took place. And I found an article from November of 2019 which talked about what Matt Bevin's actions were during the walkouts. This article was actually published just after he lost re-election back in November 2019. But it says, quote, During the past two years, Bevin has continued to insult teachers. In April 2018, he accused teachers of leaving children vulnerable to sexual assault and drug use during the state walkout. He said, quote, I guarantee you somewhere in Kentucky today, a child was sexually assaulted that was left at home because there was nobody there to watch them, unquote. He said, he also said, quote, children were harmed, some physically, some sexually, some were introduced to drugs for the first time because they were vulnerable 
and left alone, unquote. Uh-oh. So, you know, obviously Bashir taking the complete opposite position on the strikes helped him out immensely, along with the fact that he was actually the state's attorney general while Bevan was in office, and there were other reasons, too, why Bevan was unpopular, and Bashir challenged him while he was attorney general, and his father, Steve Bashir, was also a Democratic governor of the state, a pretty popular governor of the state from 2007 to 2015. But now, he's facing re-election against the current Republican attorney general. How the tables turn. Because back in 2019, you had the incumbent Republican governor facing the current Democratic attorney general of the state, and now it's flipped. You have the incumbent Democratic governor facing the current Republican attorney general, and that man is Daniel Cameron. Cameron is the state's first black attorney general and actually the first Republican who has held the office since 1943, which is pretty crazy to think about because when you think about Kentucky, you think Republican. But a Republican hadn't held the attorney general's seat in the state from the 1940s until 2019. True, true. Now, Cameron was also previously a law clerk and he served as legal counsel to Senator Mitch McConnell, Mr. Turtle, from 2015 to 2017. While he was Attorney General, though, you probably remember this, back in 2020, Cameron sparked widespread protests after his office did not charge the two officers who shot and killed Breonna Taylor in her home in Louisville back in 2020. But going back to Bashir, unlike Bevan, Bashir has remained popular with his state. Morning Consult found that Bashir's approval back in the summer was 64%, and while there hasn't been much polling in this race, there's only three polls listed on 538's website from October. You all remember 538 from ABC News, which is one of the sources well, a really good election source that we used last year. We can use it again this year. But their website listed only three polls for the race that they found from all of October. But all of them showed Bashir with a lead, including one from a Republican-aligned political action committee. But both the Cook Political Report and Sabato's crystal ball from Larry Sabato at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics, again, two of probably the best election rating sources, out there that we also used last year for 2022 previews, they rate this race as lean Democrat. But it should be a close race, as expected, when you've got a popular Democratic governor in an overall Republican state. It's definitely going to be one to watch when the results come in on Tuesday night. So if you live in Kentucky, you should probably go vote on Tuesday, especially because it's not just governor that's on the ballot. You've also got elections for attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, Auditor of Public Accounts, and Agriculture Commissioner, all of which are currently held by Republicans. Bashir is the only statewide elected Democrat in Kentucky. Now, the outcome of this race probably isn't going to tell us much about the national environment heading into a presidential election year, because, you know, a Democrat is the governor of a Republican state like Kentucky. Voters do tend to act differently depending on whether it's a state or a federal election. But a Cameron win would certainly bring momentum for Republicans, and likewise a Bashir win for Democrats, too. And especially the result, too, like the actual percentage margin that the result is. Like if Cameron, I mean, even if Cameron is able to win, that's a big win for Republicans. They gain a governorship, 
they gain, I mean, they control the legislature in Kentucky, so then they gain that trio of full control in the Kentucky state government. But also, if Cameron wins by, you know, a couple points, a healthy margin, that's a good sign for Democrats. But if Bashir kind of runs away with it, five, ten points even if he wins, then that's really good for Democrats too. So, you know, the overall outcome may not tell us very much about the overall national electorate, but the result, the actual percentage, it may. So that'll be one to tune in for on Tuesday night. And then the other state that we've got holding a gubernatorial election this year is Mississippi. And again, you're probably saying, Xander, Mississippi, really competitive. And normally I'd agree with you because elections in Mississippi aren't particularly interesting normally. But this year's governor's race actually might be a little different. Mississippi has not voted for the Democratic nominee for president since 1976, Jimmy Carter. But they actually had never elected a Republican as governor until 1992. It's a fact. How about that? But the current governor is a Republican, Tate Reeves, who beat Democratic nominee Jim Hood in the 2019 election, who had been the state's attorney general for 15 years by just five points. And the next year, Trump won the state in the presidential election by 16%. But like I've been saying, statewide elections are kind of different compared to federal elections. I mean, in states like Mississippi and Kentucky, and we still see this with Joe Manchin in West Virginia, conservative, moderate Democrats, because, you know, we've talked about this on our podcast, but if you can believe it, the parties kind of did a big switch in a lot of what they think in the 1900s, especially you know, right around the civil rights movement is when the Democrats started being more in favor of civil rights and ending segregation. And the Republicans or the Democrats who weren't at the time then moved over to the Republican Party. So it's not like states like West Virginia and Kentucky and Mississippi totally changed ideologies. They were super liberal back in the day to now they're super conservative. They were always really conservative, but it used to be Democrats were a lot more conservative. And now the Republicans are really the conservative right wing party. But that switch, you know, it took time, especially in the South over the last, you know, Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. Remember that. So and Joe Manchin is still elected in West Virginia, even though West Virginia is a state that voted for Trump by like 40 points or something like that. So you've got that aspect there as well. But also there is the fact that voters you know, do tend to vote differently depending on whether it's a state or a federal race. Like, another example I've got for you before we get to Mississippi, another example I've got for you is Montana a couple of years ago. The governor in Montana, usually a Republican state, was a Democrat, Steve Bullock, a pretty popular governor in Montana too. So then when he's term limited after two terms, can't run anymore, in 2020, he runs for Senate. And... He lost by 10 points. It was against, you know, it was against an incumbent Republican, but he was still a popular Democratic governor and voters who maybe have voted for him for governor said, we're not going to vote for you for Senate. We're going to vote for Republican. You know, that's just the way some people think. That's just the way some people vote. It might seem crazy to you or me, but that's, you know, that's the reality. So back to Mississippi now. The current governor, Tate Reeves, a Republican, he has struggled with low approval ratings because of his handling of the water crisis in the capital of Jackson, Jackson's the capital of Mississippi, when flooding caused a water treatment plant 
to produce less clean water and drop the pressure in the water system that caused massive confusion in Jackson. Reeves has also been named in the welfare fund scandal that involves former star NFL quarterback Brett Favre. If you don't know that story, basically a state audit found that $77 million in welfare funds were misspent, including $5 million for a volleyball facility at Favre's alma mater, the University of Southern Mississippi, and $1.1 million that Favre was paid in money from the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Fund for speeches that uh, he never gave. That's not the whole story. You can look it up online, but that's kind of the gist, really. Brett Favre's been in the news a lot for that lately. But back in 2022, Reeves' administration abruptly fired attorney Brad Piggott, who had been hired by the welfare agency to recuperate welfare funds that were previously misspent. Now, Piggott was fired right after he had subpoenaed the University of Southern Mississippi's Athletic Foundation in July of last year. Mm, interesting. Now, there was the previous governor, Phil Bryant, who was actually way more involved in that scandal, but even Reeves' administration has been pulled into that as well. Now, Reeves' opponent in this race is Democrat Brandon Presley, who has served on the Mississippi Public Service Commission since 2008, representing the northern portion of the state. And like Democratic governors in Republican states, Andy Bashir and John Bell Edwards, two we mentioned earlier, Presley's pretty moderate in the Democratic Party. But unlike those previously mentioned, how about this? I mean, listen to the name. Presley. Brandon Presley is a second cousin to Elvis Presley. How about that? That's a big fact. Now, Presley does appear to be giving Reeves a run for his money. Polls are showing a close race, and there was a recent article in the Cook Political Report which featured a couple of GOP operatives spreading worry about the trajectory of the race. Presley has obviously been seeking to capitalize on Reeves' scandals and his unpopularity. Is it enough, though, in Ruby Red, Mississippi? Probably not, because there's been no poll on 538 that showed Presley actually ahead since the beginning of the year, since January. There was a poll, though, sponsored by the Democratic Governors Association, which found him down just one point over a week ago. Now, is there a partisan lean with the sponsor of that poll? Yeah, obviously, but it's also the only poll we've gotten in the last couple of weeks. So again, we really don't have much to rely on. But the Koch Political Report rates the race as lean Republican. Sabado's crystal ball has it as a likely Republican election. But again, even if Presley is able to pull off a big upset, and listen, if he was able to win, I said it was competitive, but if he was able to win, it would still be a pretty big upset. It still probably wouldn't tell us much about what's going to happen next year in the big time elections. Because... With governor's races, you tend to find that voters are more concerned with issues that they might not be concerned about on the national level. Like what I just talked about in Kentucky a couple of years ago in the 2019 election with the teachers' strike. In Mississippi, they've got things that they're dealing with that other states aren't, and also their governor is very unpopular. So all of that you have to factor in as well. But Reeves is still probably the favorite to win at this point. But if the results do come in close on Tuesday night, it could be one to watch. And if you're in Mississippi, you should obviously go vote because it's not just governor that's having the election. There's a number of statewide offices, including lieutenant governor, secretary of state, and attorney general that are going to be on the ballot on Tuesday. And just in case you were curious, Republicans actually currently hold 
27 of the governorships across the country compared to 23 for the Democrats. So those are the three gubernatorial elections that are happening or have happened this year. Now let's talk about some legislative elections. And I know that if you don't live in one of these four states, there's four states electing their state legislatures this year. It might get kind of boring. But there's one state that many are saying could be a bellwether for next year, and it is the state I love talking about the most. And y'all know what that state is. And we will get to that, not state, Commonwealth in just a minute. But there are four states in total that are electing their state legislatures this year. Two of the states we've already mentioned, two we have yet to discuss. The two we have previously mentioned are Louisiana and Mississippi. I'll go over them briefly. All 144 seats in the Louisiana state legislature were up for election this year, 39 in the Senate and 105 in the House of Representatives. And like I mentioned earlier, just like the statewide elections, Louisiana uses the same two-round system for state legislature elections as well, which means many of those elections have already been decided, but in districts where there will be a runoff, it is going to take place on the same day as the other runoffs on Saturday, November 18th. But both houses in the legislature are expected to remain firmly in Republican hands. And then there's Mississippi. All 174 seats in the Mississippi legislature are up for grabs this year. There's 52 in the Senate and 122 in the House of Representatives, but both chambers are expected to stay in control by Republicans, and all of those elections are taking place on Tuesday. Unless you're voting early, which you could obviously, I mean, I've done it. I would promote voting early, so you could obviously do that too. Of course, we're a week away from the election, so maybe at this point, if you're registered, vote on election day. If you can, obviously you should. But there was one other state we mentioned earlier, Kentucky. If you're interested, Kentucky does not hold legislative elections this year. They hold legislative elections in even-numbered years, like 2024 is when they'll hold their next elections. But now we're going to spend some time. I think this is the most I'm going to have to talk about any one state. We're going to spend some time on a couple of off-year election darlings. We've got New Jersey, and then we've got Virginia. But let's start with New Jersey, because... Both chambers in the New Jersey legislature are expected to be controlled by Democrats, as they were previously. All 120 seats are up for election, 40 in the Senate, 80 in the General Assembly, with Democrats currently holding a 10-seat majority in the Senate and a 12-seat advantage in the General Assembly, the lower house. Democrats are expected to continue to have their majorities in that pretty blue state. But here's the big one that I want to talk about. Here we go! Y'all, we are talking about the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Not just because I live here, obviously, but it is my home. I love my old Virginia. But because also, they're likely to be probably the best indicator of where the national mood is one year away from the presidential election. Like, listen, to be honest, y'all... If you're freaking out about presidential polls one year away from the election, get a life. I'm sorry. Rude! But if we went off of polls of a presidential election the year before the presidential election happened, Donald Trump wouldn't have been president in 2016. Mitt Romney would have been president in 2012. Like, listen, 
don't freak out. Don't put any attention to them, okay? They're basically just there so that cable news has something to talk about. Like, it really doesn't matter what they say. And the Virginia elections, what happens in the governor's election, listen, what happened in the governor's election in 2021 didn't necessarily translate to what happened nationwide, even in Virginia in 2022. So even to say that Virginia's elections this year are going to be the best indicator of where the national mood is one year away from the presidential election, you know, they may be the best indicator because we don't have a lot of very good indicators right now. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to them, especially if you live in Virginia, because these elections are going to have some massive consequences if you are a resident of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So let's talk about these elections. Virginia and its off-year elections. They make sure, y'all, they make sure we're voting for important things every single year. And this year is absolutely no different. Up for grabs are all 140 seats in the General Assembly and control for both chambers, unlike the three previous states I mentioned, is going to be tight. Because as you all well know, Virginia currently has a Republican governor, Mr. Glenjamin, as we refer to him on this podcast, Glenn Youngkin, that's his full name, who hasn't been able to get a majority of his agenda passed because the state Senate is currently controlled by Democrats. Democrats currently hold 22 of the 40 seats in the upper chamber and can only lose one in order to remain in control because in the event of a tie, the lieutenant governor serves as the presiding officer of the Senate and is that tie-breaking vote, and the lieutenant governor is a Republican, Winsome Sears. So Republicans only need 20 seats, or half, to have a functioning majority. Democrats need 21. They have 22 right now, so they can only lose one. But let's take a look at the map. I know this is a podcast, but in your head, imagine a map of Virginia. Or even better, if you're able, if you're not driving or distracted. I don't want to distract you. But if you're able, pull up a map of Virginia. Or even better, a map of Virginia's state senate districts. Because I'm about to tell y'all the races that are going to be, that I'm going to be watching most closely on Tuesday night. Now, 538 from ABC News, as we've said, very, you know, not always accurate, but a very good source of election information. They have done us the great service of analyzing these races in this off-year election. They actually have an article which is titled, Virginia's Legislative Contest May Be the Most Important Races in 2023. So they've helped us out there. And there's also VPAP, which is the Virginia Public Access Project. That's another great resource for elections and government information in Virginia. They do great work as well. Shout out to them. Because as I mentioned earlier, this is an off-year election. It's an odd-numbered year. We don't have as much data and resources to go back on when we're analyzing these races. Because harken back to last year, we had data, analysis, and polls, things like Politico, Real Clear Politics, even though they're kind of wacky, The Economist, and a lot more that we don't have this year. Like last year, if y'all remember from that podcast, episode 81, even if... I know the elections happened a year ago, but even if you haven't listened to it, if you have the time listen to it, or at least download it, because it's actually probably pretty interesting to hear what I said a year ago and then see what's actually happened now. But like last year on the podcast, we found 
a man named Simon Rosenberg on Twitter. He was the founder of the New Democratic Network and the liberal think tank New Policy Institute, who found that Republicans were releasing low-quality polls to actually skew the averages of polling in a bunch of key states like, I remember, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, like the key states last year, which may have been a big reason of why Democrats overperformed expectations last year. Like I basically said, there were really two theories you could go off of last year heading into the midterm elections that I remember was basically the polling wasn't going so well for Democrats. So maybe that is actually a case and we were going to get a red wave year or what was actually happening is what Simon Rosenberg kind of hypothesized was that Republicans were actually releasing low quality polls to skew the averages, which is, as it turns out, he was basically right because Democrats overperformed expectations last year. But this year, we don't have all of that data and analysis, but thankfully, we can rely on some from 538 and VPAP this year for these key races. But, anyways, stay on track. Back to Virginia. And before we go through the actual races to watch, something else I wanted to note about Virginia, because we're about to get deep down into the weeds, y'all. This year is going to be the first four new districts, because after the 2020 census, redistricting happens. Redistricting happens once every 10 years after we get the results from the census. But usually, because Virginia holds their House state house elections in 2021, we're usually able to use the new districts that year. But in 2021, we weren't able to do that because what happened was voters in Virginia approved a new bipartisan commission, which was responsible for redistricting in 2020, which then predictably stalled because the even number of Democrats and Republicans couldn't even come to a compromise. Like, I'm going to be honest with y'all, I voted against that commission. Like, I know we're not supposed to gerrymander and fair districts and all that stuff, but I looked at how that commission was made up, and I was like, they're not going to get anything done because it's an even number of Democrats and Republicans, and they have to compromise. And as we've seen, that is usually unlikely. So I was like, well, that's, and it's going to go to the courts. So why would I want that? So I didn't vote for it, but it got passed by the majority of voters. And then predictably, the commission couldn't come up with anything. So what happened was the Virginia Supreme Court ultimately hired two experts. One was nominated by the Republicans. The other was nominated by Democrats to come up with fair, non-gerrymandered maps, which they did, but as I said, not in time to use them for the 2021 elections. But one interesting thing these new maps did was they basically didn't even factor incumbents into these districts. Like, usually, you know, when legislatures draw districts, they like to help out incumbents, obviously, you know? But the people who drew these maps didn't do that. They started from scratch, and they basically threw out incumbents and said, these are the maps. So you had some districts that had multiple incumbents, even from the same party sometimes, and then you had some districts that had no incumbents whatsoever. And there's another storyline with that, too, in these elections that's been the mass exodus of lawmakers in the General Assembly, which you can kind of attribute to the redistricting process, because 43 of the 140 seats, those elections did not feature an incumbent. 
and were thus designated as an open seat, which is 30.7% of all the seats, which is much higher than the 16 that were open seats back in 2019, which was the last time that all the 140 seats in the General Assembly were up for election. We actually had five incumbents lose in their primaries, including a woman who has been mentioned on this podcast before, the wonderful, oh my goodness, Amanda Chase, who has been, I, I, she might have called herself this, Trump in heels. She, if you don't remember, wanted to declare martial law after Trump lost the election in January 6th, you know, all that stuff. Well, she lost. Bye-bye. And then there's 28 other incumbents who announced that they would either be running for a seat in a different body or they'd be retiring altogether. That includes both party leaders in the Senate, Democrat Dick Sasslaw and Republican Tommy Norman. So both parties are going to have new leadership in the state Senate next year. And also former House Speaker Democrat Eileen Filler-Korn, who was actually running for the U.S. House seat, one of them up in Northern Virginia next year. But let's get into this analysis, starting off by taking a look at the state Senate. 538 has rated all 40 seats, either favored by Democrats, favored by Republicans, or rated as highly competitive. So Democrats are favored in 19 of these seats. Republicans hold the clear advantage in 16, which leaves five seats under the highly competitive distinction. But as I said, Democrats need 21 seats to win the chamber. Republicans need 20. So Democrats need to win at least two of those five in order to remain in control. And since they currently hold 22 seats, they can only lose one. Republicans, meanwhile, actually need to win four of those five to get to their magic number because 538 has them already at 16. They're expecting to win 16. But then out of the highly competitive districts, they need to win four out of the five to take control of the state Senate. So let's get a little into the weeds here. There are five seats that are rated as highly competitive. Those seats, and again, we're talking about state legislative seats. So these are areas that aren't that big. And so y'all who know Virginia geography are going to love this podcast segment. So let's get into it because these five seats that are rated as highly competitive are Senate District 16, which includes part of the western suburbs of Richmond, which is the capital of Virginia, mostly Henrico County. Senate District 17 includes parts of Southside Virginia and the Hampton Roads, which again is Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Hampton, Newport News, Portsmouth. But this Senate District 17 includes parts of Portsmouth and Suffolk. Senate District 24, which also includes parts of Hampton Roads, including Williamsburg and parts of Newport News. Senate District 27, which is in the Fredericksburg area. If you don't know, that's about halfway between Richmond and D.C. on Interstate 95. And then there's also Senate District 31, which is in Northern Virginia and includes parts of Loudoun and Fauquier counties, which are west of D.C. So those are the five districts that I'm going to be watching the most on Tuesday night for their returns, because these are the districts that could decide control of the chamber. If you say so. Now, in 2021, Yunkin and Republicans won four of these districts, except the only one they didn't win was Senate District 16, which was that Henrico County, Western Richmond suburbs district. But all five of them in 2022 
voted for Democrats, but they only won Senate District 17, which was the Hampton Roads, and Senate District 24, which was the Williamsburg area, by one point. And they only won Senate District 27, which was the Fredericksburg area, by two points. And so obviously those are going to be close. Now, VPAP's definitions only include four of these districts being competitive. Senate District 16, the one that I said Republicans didn't win in 2021, is rated by them as lean Democrats. So basically, if Republicans win Senate District 16, they've probably won the Senate. But it'll likely probably stay in Democratic hands. It voted for Democrats by 10 points last year. Now that means that Republicans cannot lose any of the remaining four competitive seats. If Democrats win just one of Senate District 17, 24, 27, and 31, they remain in control of the chamber, and a split government in Virginia remains because the Republican, the Republicans' election isn't until 2025, so the Republicans going to stay in the governor's mansion. But thankfully... We also have some additional information to go off of because the final campaign finance reports for every campaign before the election, final campaign finance reports before the election came out on Tuesday, just in time for this podcast, y'all. And when I talk about VPAP being a good source, VPAP is the one who got all these numbers and then put them in this nice chart for us. So again, VPAP for the win. Nice. But let's take a look at the latest campaign finance numbers for these, well, I guess I'll do these four really competitive districts. So in Senate District 17, again, that's parts of Southside, Virginia, and Hampton Roads, and includes parts of Portsmouth and Suffolk, the Democrat candidate, Clint Jenkins, raised about $1.82 million. That's compared to $791,000 for the Republican candidate Emily Brewer. So Jenkins outraised Brewer by just over $200,000 in that race. Then in Senate District 24, we've got the Republican candidate Danny Diggs, who outraised Democrat Monty Mason by about $40,000. Diggs raised about $1.827 million. Mason raised about $1.787 million. So they're they're right neck and neck there in Senate District 24. In 27, that's again the Fredericksburg area seat. The Democrat Joel Griffin actually outraised the Republican Tara Durant by just over $400,000. Griffin raised $2.1 million compared to Durant's $1.69 million. And then in Senate District 31, the Democrat Russet Perry actually outraised the Republican Juan Pablo Segura. Perry raised about $2.67 million. Segura raised about $2.14 million. So Perry outraised Segura by about $500,000. That is the most expensive legislative race in the state this year. That kind of money in Virginia state government, like for state legislature elections in Virginia, is absolutely wild. But again, they're spending a lot of that money in the D.C., media market. So if they want to buy ads and stuff, it's all very expensive. Now, listen, having more money than somebody definitely doesn't mean, you know, they're going to be the winner in the race. But, you know, it's interesting to see how much money each candidate's raising. And obviously, it's good info to have. But overall, in the Senate, because Democrats don't have to win as many competitive seats, they definitely have the advantage as of now 
to retain control of the chamber. But there's also something interesting I wanted to look at before we move on to the State House, because there was a special election earlier this year that I wanted to take a look at, because Senate District 7, Republican Jen Kiggins resigned her seat because she ran for Congress and won. So she opened up a special election in that seat that took place in January. And that seat is the Virginia Beach area down in Tidewater, Hampton Roads area. The Democrat, Aaron Rouse, actually flipped that seat, winning by about 700 votes, which was just over 1%, over the Republican Kevin Adams. Now, the two are going to meet up again in the newly drawn Senate District 22 in Virginia Beach. VPAP has that rated as lean Democrat for Rouse. He's expected to win that election. But listen, could that special election earlier this year have been a foreshadow towards Next week's elections, possibly. Democrats have been doing really well in a lot of special elections, not just in Virginia, but across the country. Could those tell us something about what we're going to see on Tuesday? Maybe, maybe not. We just have to wait and see until the results come in on Tuesday. Fact! But now let's move over to the other half of the Virginia General Assembly, the lower chamber, the House of Delegates. Senate has 40 seats. House of Delegates has 100. Republicans currently hold a slim majority, 52 to 48. And in the House, members only serve two-year terms, which meant all 100 seats were also up for election back in 2021. But in the Senate, members serve four-year terms. So this is all their first time up for election since 2019. 2019 is the year that Democrats won a trifecta in Virginia state government, because Ralph Northam, the Democrat, was the governor back in 2019. They won a trifecta for the first time since it was like 20, 25 years. It was a long time. And then that was broken because of the 2021 elections. But back to this year, 538 rates 48 of these races in 2023 as favored for the Democrats, 44 are favored for the Republicans, and eight districts are in the highly competitive distinction. And since the House has 100 seats instead of 40 for the Senate, these districts are much smaller. There's only about 86,000 people per district in the House compared to about 215,000, give or take a few thousand or so, for each Senate district. So these House districts are smaller. Too many facts. So there's eight highly competitive districts. These are, let's get into the weeds again, y'all. House District 21, which is in Northern Virginia, includes parts of Prince William County. House District 22, which is right next to it, also includes parts of Prince William County in Northern Virginia. House District 30, which is also in Northern Virginia, it includes parts of Fauquier and Loudoun Counties. House District 57, which is part of the Western Richmond suburbs, parts of Goochland and Henrico Counties. House District 65, which includes Fredericksburg. House District 82, which includes Petersburg, which is south of Richmond, just a little bit on Interstate 95. House District 89, which includes parts of Chesapeake and Suffolk in the Hampton Roads Tidewater area. And then House District 97, which includes parts of Virginia Beach. Now in 2021, Yunkin and Republicans managed to win all eight of these districts. But remember, 
these weren't the district lines in 2021. It just means that if these were, they would have won these seats based on the vote totals. But last year, Democrats had the most votes in six of these districts. House districts 22 and 30 were the only two that still went for Republicans up in Northern Virginia. And since Democrats already have 48 in their camp, at least according to 538, 48 that they can reasonably count on, where if it's not an epic collapse by Democrats, they'll win 48 seats, that means they need to win just three of the eight competitive seats to win control of the House, which they had after the 2019 elections, but they, again, as I mentioned, lost in 2021. Now, Republicans, on the other hand, because they have 44 safe seats, according to 538, they would need to win seven of these eight districts to have control of the chamber. And if we end up in a 50-50 tie, well, there's no appointed presiding officer like there is in the Senate, like the lieutenant governor. So, you know, that's the Speaker of the House, who's elected usually by the majority. So, then we have to enter this power-sharing agreement, or the two parties have to create a power-sharing agreement, which, um... Let's not have to go down that road, please, because that would be an absolute mess. But just like in the Senate, Democrats don't need to win as many of these competitive districts, and that gives them the advantage in that aspect. But VPAP rates seven of these races as competitive. House District 30, which was the one in Northern Virginia, is rated as lean Republican by VPAP because Republicans won that district in 2021 and 2022, they won it by seven points last year. So again, let's go take a look at the fundraising totals. Again, not a total indicator of who's going to win, but it, it again, it's some additional data to use. So in these eight competitive districts, let's start out in House District 21, Prince William County, Northern Virginia. The Democrat, Josh Thomas, outraised the Republican Josh Stirrup by over $1 million in the district that Democrats won by about two points last year. Thomas raised $1.79 million. Stirrup had only raised $710,000. And then right next door, Prince William County, Nova, House District 22, the Democrat Travis Nemhard outraised the Republican Ian Lovejoy. Nemhard raised about $1.1 million. Lovejoy, the Republican, only raised about $548,000, so about $570,000 difference in a district that Republicans actually won by three points last year. And then in House District 30, the one in Nova, Fauquier, Loudoun Counties, that Republicans won by seven points last year. VPAP actually rates as lean Republican. The Democrat, still out raising the Republican, Rob Bancy, raised about $777,000. Gary Higgins raised $312,000, a difference of about $460,000. And then you've got House District 57, which includes the western Richmond suburbs, Henrico, Goochland counties. Talk about this race for a little bit, because the Democrat is Susanna Gibson. She outraised the Republican David Owen by about... $20,000. That race is very close fundraising-wise. Gibson raised about $211,000. Owen about a, almost $190,000. And that race has gotten national attention because if you haven't heard, it was found out back in September 
that Gibson, the Democratic nominee, has recorded videos online where she, according to the Washington Post, performs sex acts with her husband for a live online audience and encouraged viewers to pay them with tips for specific requests, according to online videos viewed by the Washington Post. Huh. And so that's been a big scandal around Gibson. Democrats have mostly stayed united behind her, but Republicans decided, remember Republicans in the last year or so in Virginia, they made sure to put age verifications on pornography websites, Pornhub and a bunch of other websites basically said, well, we're done in Virginia basically banning them and all that stuff. And the Republicans then decided it was okay to mail out images from those videos in an envelope that said, don't open if you're under 18 or 21 or whatever. Like, oh yeah, I'm sure the kids who see that envelope are like, huh, I better not open this because it says, don't open it until I'm 18 or 21. Uh-huh, good job there. So that's another aspect that's playing into that very competitive race, House District 57. And then moving on, House District 65, that's the Fredericksburg area. Democrat Joshua Cole actually outraised Republican Lee Peters by over $1.1 million. That's a district that Democrats actually won by nine points last year. Cole raised over $2 million. Peters raised just a bit over $900,000 in the fundraising cycle. Also, House District 82, again, the Petersburg area. Democrat Kimberly Pope Adams outraised Republican Kim Taylor by almost $130,000 in this seat that Democrats won by just one point last year. Adams raised just over a million dollars. Kim Taylor rose $906,000 in the fundraising cycle. And then in the final two, House District 89 in the Hampton Roads area. Then that district, Karen Jenkins, the Democrat, actually outraised the Republican Baxter Ennis by just over $370,000 in a district that Democrats won again by just one point last year. And the Republicans actually won by seven and a half points two years ago. Jenkins raised $977,000. Ennis only raised about $605,000. And then finally, in House District 97, which is in Virginia Beach, Democrat Michael Feggins outraised Republican Karen Greenhog by over $500,000 in a district that Democrats won by five points last year. Feggins raised one about $1.45 million. Greenhog raised about $945,000. So again, fundraising data, not the best predictor of a winner. But listen, there is a clear trend because in the most competitive districts, Democrats are raising the most money. In the 13 races that 538 is labeling as highly competitive, Democrats have outraised their Republican opponents in 12 of those. This is a fact. That that might tell you something. So Democrats don't have to win as many of the competitive seats to win the chamber and they had the most votes in six of the eight last year. So again, you'd probably peg them as slight favorites in that aspect. So that's, you know, a little 
inside politics talk, really getting into the weeds. But before we move on, let's talk about the things that are defining this race in Virginia. Because again, as I said, statewide elections tend to have their own issues that voters decide on. Story time! And so you probably remember back in 2021 when Republicans swept into power with Mr. Glenjamin, the current governor, taking down former Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe, the biggest issue in the race was likely, it probably was, education. Yunkin rode a wave of parents thinking they should have more of a say in what their kids are being taught. Of course, the occasional mention of critical race theory was thrown in there, which we have said previously on this podcast before. We had a whole podcast on it if you want to go back and listen. Critical race theory is not and has not been taught in public grade schools, and if you say it is, you're lying because it's not true. It also helped him, Glenjamin, that his opponent said parents shouldn't have a say in what their kids are taught, which didn't matter if he was right or wrong, you can't say that in a close election, and it cost him. So Glenjamin really tried to paint himself as a reasonable, moderate Republican in that election, but the actions he's taken and the things he said have made it known that that is not exactly his brand, his style. Youngkin, he spent much of his first year in office outside of the state, the Commonwealth of Virginia, attempting to sell his brand in other parts of the country, partly in a way to help boost other Republicans, but also to boost his own personality nationwide in the event he decides to run for higher office. That has been mentioned many times. He is reportedly a new favorite of Rupert Murdoch, who has apparently moved on from Ron DeSantis. I know Rupert Murdoch retired, but he's still a very influential figure, and he will be until the day he dies, in the conservative movement and in the Republican Party in this country. Like in the run-up to the midterm elections in 2022, Youngkin campaigned with people like Carrie Lake in Arizona. Carrie Lake is one of the most known 2020 election deniers. I don't. I still don't think she's conceded defeat in the 2022 governor's election in Arizona, which she lost to the Democrat Katie Hobbs. He's campaigned with others who have denied the results of the 2020 presidential election because how could Donnie Boy lose? Like Michigan's Republican governor nominee Tudor Dixon, who also lost, by the way. But in Virginia, Youngkin's administration, as I said, hasn't been able to pass much of his agenda due to the split control of the General Assembly, but what they have done, without legislative approval, is roll back the rights of transgender students in Virginia schools. The administration bans teachers and school staff from referring to kids by anything other than their pronouns that they were assigned at birth, which Youngkin's administration said was, quote, reaffirming the rights of parents to determine how their children will be raised and educated, unquote. But it seems like you're actually taking away people's rights. Like, I'm just putting this out there, but a fetus apparently has more rights than a schoolchild in this instance, you know? But of course, the parents, or not even really parents sometimes, who seem to really be advocating and interested in what bathroom school children are using. Remember we talked about Moms for Liberty on a podcast and how a lot of those people aren't even parents of school children. But a lot of these people seem to have been duped by fake Facebook outrage, like litter boxes being in classrooms for kids who identify as cats. Of course, that turned out to be false. Even a Fox News anchor, though, 
said in August of this year that parents of Northern Virginia schools were telling her that there were litter boxes in the classrooms of schools because children were identifying as cats. Where I live um, in the Washington area, I have a lot of Northern Virginia moms who have kids in school who have told me that there are schools who are now having to put litter boxes in for kids who identify as cats. That is not true. She was debunked many times. And even, I just have to bring this up, former NFL coach and current NBC football commentator, Tony Dungy, a well-known advocate of the LGBTQ plus community. I don't think so. Promoted the hoax on Twitter this year, but had to delete the tweet and apologize because he was made aware that the information was incorrect. That may not seem relevant, but I did have to put a dig in Tony Dungy there because he tries to portray himself as a very good Christian human being, but um, I don't know about that. Anyways, you might remember last year also that there was a tip line that Youngkin's office set up so concerned parents could report when schools were teaching critical race theory to their kids. You probably remember this. You might hearken back to it now that I mentioned it, because it turned out to be a pretty epic failure. It was used to do many other things other than report critical race theory. So it seems like really this mantra of parents' rights that Youngkin keeps emphasizing really only applies to parents who want to keep their kids from learning things like diversity and inclusiveness. Oh my gosh, the horror. How could you? Terrible. It really seems like parents' rights only concerns the rights of those parents, because those parents appear to be the ones who are taking action and forcing their worldview onto everybody. Like, listen, I get the emails that Yunkin's official governor's office sends out, and I made sure to save one of them that came from August 15th of this year, because sometimes he likes to, like I got the emails from the previous governor's office too, Governor Northam, and he didn't really do this, promoting articles in newspapers and online journals or whatever that talked about him. But Yunkin's office seems to like to do that, because they promoted a New York Post article which was titled, quote, Happy conservative warrior, Glenn Youngkin's recipe for success in Virginia and the U.S., unquote. Of course, the article made sure to name check one George Soros and say that he was pumping money into Virginia for Democrats in this year's legislative elections. That's what it could have been. All the Democrats are getting this money because of George Soros. Of course, I just found the answer. Another email that I got from his office was a Wall Street Journal article a couple months ago from the always enlightening editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, which was titled, Glenn Youngkin's Plan to Save Gas Cars. Apparently they need saving. Now, the article talked about a bill that was passed by Democrats a few years ago when they had their trifecta that ties the vehicle emission standards that we have in Virginia to that of California, because California is the only state that is allowed to pass more restrictive emission standards than what federal guidelines say. But other states can also adopt what California decides. And so that's what Virginia did. But there's a lot of people who are freaked out that California has banned sales of new internal combustion engine cars by 2035. That is 12 years away. And under current law, 
Virginia would have to follow suit. But Glenjamin wants to repeal that law and has said that if he gains a Republican majority in both chambers of the legislature, he will do just that. Because, you know, who cares about climate change? That silly thing, please, we need to keep going on with our big gas-guzzling cars and our don't-tread-on-me license plates. But then there's the issue that wasn't really in people's minds when Yunkin was elected in 2021, you know? Of course, I'm talking about abortion. Since Yunkin was elected, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, sending that issue back to the states. We've mentioned this numerous times on this podcast. And so now the stakes on this issue are massively raised because Virginia is now the only southern state in the country, southeast, that area, where abortion is legal. But that could change. Publicly, Glenjamin has said that he's for a 15-week abortion limit, which probably you'd think, okay, that's, you know, a reasonable proposal, I guess, for many. But I'm here to tell you that he is absolutely lying, because back in June of last year, Yunkin said that he would sign, quote, any bill to protect life, unquote, any bill, you say. So if, let's say hypothetically, Republicans control both chambers of the General Assembly, and the Republican General Assembly wanted to go ahead and ban all abortions, even without exceptions for rape or incest, as several Republican-led states have already done, Youngkin apparently says he would sign that. And during the run-up to the 2021 election, we think we talked about this before, there was a video that was released of Youngkin talking about abortion after being asked whether he would defund Planned Parenthood or take action on abortion. Here's the clip. It's a really important issue to me, and I, and it's important issue to me too. I want to make sure that Virginia is doing everything it can until we get an abortion ban yeah. to make sure that we're defending the unborn, and whether that's you know getting a fetal heartbeat bill here like they did in Texas, or defunding Planned yeah, let, Parenthood. Yeah, let's just start. Let's just start. I'm just telling you, you're on the right. First thing we got to do is we got to we got to we got to we got to stop. We got to stop using taxpayer money for abortions, and we got to we got to stop. Allowing abortions all the way up until the last week before. Right? We, and, and this, this, we can get done. And we can we can start making the move. And the amazing thing is that a majority of Virginians vastly agree with taking back ground that was taken away from us. And this is this is why you know, it's interesting. While the abortion issue is one that can listen, I am staunchly unabashedly pro-life. And the abortion issue is an issue that, it, that the Democrats used to divide us. And in fact, there is such common ground for us to say, wait a minute, where this crazy governor and the governor before him have taken Virginia is so out of bounds. Let's start the walk back. Can we keep on the news? Do we take, like, did it to the abortionist, though? Yeah, I'm going to be really honest with you. The short answer is, in this campaign, I can. When I'm governor and I have a majority in the House, we can start going on offense. But as a campaign topic, sadly, that in fact won't win my independent votes that I have to get. So you'll never hear me support Planned Parenthood. What you'll hear me talk about is actually taking back the radical abortion policies that Virginians don't want. And in fact, they're the radicals. So here's one of the key lines from that. He said, quote, 
I'm going to be really honest with you. The short answer is in this campaign, I can't. When I'm governor and I have a majority in the House, we can start going on offense. But as a campaign topic, sadly, that in fact won't win my independent votes that I have to get, unquote. So y'all, the man is not an idiot. He's a very smart politician. The man knows that advocating for a ban on abortion would not win in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that Republicans would lose by larger margins than their larger margins than they possibly will on Tuesday. That's why he's publicly asking for a compromise. But privately, that video was not taken where Yunkin thought he was being recorded. He thought that was a private conversation. Privately, he's open to anything. Of course, if an abortion ban is passed in Virginia, Republicans will probably get wiped out in 2025 elections. So you do. You do you, because y'all know Biden won the state by 10 points in 2020. The last Republican to win it in the presidential race was George Bush in 2004. The last time that Republicans won a statewide election before Yunkin was elected in 2021 was 2009. Like, Virginia is a purple state, but it's a pretty blue purple state. And if they, if they did go ahead and ban abortion, they would, um, that'd be very bad for everybody, but also particularly for them in the next elections. But remember, y'all, that the rights of people to control what you can do with your bodies is on the ballot in Virginia this year, just like it's been in a lot of other states in the past year, two years. That's why I say, to always look at if there's something on the ballot every single year where you live, because even in an off year, the implication of these Virginia elections are enormous. Like, like I've said before, here's my view. You can believe that abortion is a horrible thing morally, and you would never do that personally, but in an issue where the science is not clear-cut, it's often murky, and where you aren't just talking about the fetus being involved, but the person birthing it as well, your personal or potentially religious-affiliated views probably shouldn't decide what policy becomes for everyone. This is not a theocracy. It is a democracy. If you want to live in a theocracy, you can move to Iran, because that is somewhere where religion is the defining feature of the government. But you wouldn't want to live in Iran, though, because it sucks. But in states where abortion has been banned, also, it can become a lot harder for women not just to get abortion care, but basic pregnancy care. Take Idaho, for example, because OBGYNs have been fleeing the state in the aftermath of Idaho's complete abortion ban that they passed last year. There's at least one hospital that has closed in the state because of it. So not even abortion care, basic care for pregnant women is becoming harder to find in these states because they just got rid of abortions. That's what happens when you implement these policies. It doesn't only affect the people who just want to get abortions. It affects everyone who becomes pregnant, and then everybody in their life who that affects as well. And there's no question that this could happen in Virginia if an abortion ban is passed. There was this story that I saw earlier this year in NPR from Oklahoma, where a pregnant woman with a non-viable fetus, that fetus when it came out was not going to be alive, was told to wait in the parking lot 
until she got sicker because doctors said they, quote, can't touch you unless you are crashing in front of us, unquote. Y'all know the medical term crashing. It means things aren't right. I'll just say that. Just goes to show you that this anti-abortion movement, it's not pro-life. It's pro-birth, because if they were pro-life, they would care about the women who are having to carry these fetuses to term. But these policies don't seem to care about both parties in this matter, you know? So there's that whole big issue. That's This election is going to decide on Tuesday whether abortion remains legal in Virginia or not. And then there's something we're just learning about in the last few days. Almost 3,400 qualified voters were mistakenly, I'm using in quotes, removed from the state's voter rolls. This problem was actually first reported back in September, and the Yunkin administration basically was like, ah, yeah, whatever. They didn't think it was a big deal when it was estimated that only about 270 voters had been removed. But now, just a week before the election, it turns out it was a much bigger deal, that over 3,000 voters, qualified voters, were removed from the state's voter rolls. Why? Apparently, it was just some silly mistake. Oh my gosh, things are going so well with Team Glenjamin. They're doing things, apparently, they're just right on track. So, there's all that. But it's, listen, it's no secret that if Republicans win control of both chambers in the General Assembly, Virginia is going to shift far to the right. If that happens, Glenjamin is going to be ramming his agenda through, and you know what that means? He is going to be gearing up for a bid for president. Y'all, that man has high aspirations. His Spirit of Virginia Political Action Committee, his PAC, is raising and spending enormous amounts of money that's coming in from outside Virginia on competitive legislative districts. Like, I find it funny how the New York Post was like, George Soros is funding the Democrats of Virginia, when that's Yunkin's own PAC is bringing in a lot of money from outside of Virginia and putting it towards Republicans in these legislative districts. Because Republicans know that the implications of these elections are huge. Republican wins in both chambers would probably give the GOP what they think is a big boost heading into next year's presidential elections, which are a whole other subject we'll touch on in future podcasts. And then on the other side, you've got Democrats who think that gaining control of the General Assembly meant not even just one chamber like they have now, but both, and continuing to stifle Youngkin's agenda will be massive for them as well, heading into some consequential national contests in 2024. And that may happen. Or, you know, these elections could prove to be an outlier, just like the 2021 elections were in Virginia, because Republicans took home the victory in 2021, and then in 2022, their red wave, except for a few places like Florida, it didn't really get to shore. In Virginia, it didn't really get to shore. So a lot of things could happen in basically 365 days, 12 months, a year. But, you know, either ways, even if you live in Virginia or not, you should be paying attention to the results of these elections on Tuesday night. These are definitely the most consequential elections we're going to have in 2023. And if you live in Virginia, 
Make sure you have a plan to vote if you haven't already. If you're going to vote on election day or if you've already voted, that's awesome. Like me, because I've already early voted. Sent my ballot in, mailed it up. It's already been received. I'm ready to go. Glenjamin didn't fail me that time. Thankfully, I wasn't removed from the voter rolls. These are facts. But before we wrap up this podcast, I just wanted to talk about some other notable things to be watching, because it's not just the Virginia legislative elections. It's not just New Jersey, not just Louisiana, Mississippi, and Kentucky. There's a couple states that are also holding some statewide referendums on a number of issues, including Texas and Maine. But the one big one to watch is in Ohio, because back in August, you might have heard about this, voters actually rejected a measure that would have required any future amendments to be voted on in a statewide referendum to get 60% of the vote in order to be approved instead of a simple 50% majority. Now, why was this voted on, you ask? Because next week, Ohio voters are going to be voting on two referendums related to marijuana and abortion. One referendum will codify the right to an abortion in the state constitution if it is approved, and the other would legalize the recreational use of marijuana. And because that measure in August failed, 57% voted against it, those are only going to require a simple majority to pass. And we've seen abortion referendums in typically Republican states like Kansas do extremely well for abortion rights groups in the last year and a half since Roe v. Wade was overturned. So it's going to be interesting to see how the referendums do in a state that Trump won by eight points a couple years ago. You've also got As I mentioned, Texas, they're holding several statewide referendums on proposed amendments to the state constitution. So even though there's not, you know, the big legislative or statewide elections in Texas, you've still got important stuff on your ballot. And then in Maine, voters are going to vote on a ballot initiative that would establish a public power company in the state. So you're going to want to vote on that, of course, y'all. And there's also many other localities across the country that are holding local elections this year. You've got, just to name a few, Charleston, South Carolina, Chicago, Houston, Indianapolis, New York City, Orlando, Philadelphia, Salt Lake City, and Seattle, and many others too, which is why it is important to check each year, like I said, to see if you'll be voting on something depending on where you live, which you can do, by the way, the links I've shared in this episode's description. I'll mention those again in just a minute. But we've already had many other elections as well this year. You've probably heard about the very consequential Wisconsin Supreme Court election that happened back in the spring. The Democratic aligned candidate won by 10 points. And then the Republicans in the legislature said, well, maybe we want to impeach you. And, you know, why? Because she had the audacity to talk about an issue, basically redistricting, because the Republicans have heavily gerrymandered the district maps in Wisconsin. And because that Democratic line candidate won the Wisconsin election, because in some states, this is weird to me in Virginia, because we don't elect our Supreme Court, but in some states like Wisconsin, they do have elections for their judges and justices for their Supreme Court. But because that Democratic line candidate won that race, Democrats, or I guess you could say more liberals have the majority now on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. If that a case against those district maps in Wisconsin gets to that court, they're likely to overturn those maps. So it's not a Republican gerrymander anymore. And because that candidate had the audacity to talk about that issue during the 
election, Republicans wanted to impeach her, which would have been a whole other thing. But apparently they've backed off that threat because even for some of them, that's a little wacko. But then you've got some other big cities who have held elections, including Chicago, where they elected a new mayor earlier this year. I think they're going to have council elections now next week. And in Dallas, Texas, which is actually interesting because the mayor, Eric Johnson, was a Democrat. He ran unopposed, won re-election, and then he switched from the Democratic to the Republican Party. And Texas is a Republican state, but Dallas is not a very Republican city. So that's very interesting. And then in Jacksonville, Florida, Democrats flipped the mayoral seat with new Mayor Donna Deegan. Jacksonville was previously the largest city in the country with a Republican mayor. And also, for elections that are going on right now, where election day is this Tuesday, November 7th, I found that there's elections going on in Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Massachusetts, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, North Carolina, New Hampshire, New Mexico, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Texas, Utah, Washington State, and Wyoming. Are you done? And that's probably not even it. Like, y'all, these elections are absolutely important, too, if you live in these areas that are having local elections, because local government... I mean, federal government always gets, you know, the most attention, but local government is the one, it's the level of government that affects you the most, personally, you know? So, you know, even though we're in an off year, the year before the presidential election is typically the quietest, but you never know what's going to be on the ballot where you live, which is always why you should make sure you've got a plan to vote no matter the year. Let's all go vote, y'all. We should just do a podcast where we're all voting. I don't know how that would work, but voting is very important. So, you know what? There you have it, y'all. The ultimate factual breakdown of this year's elections taking place across the country. Yeah, there's no congressional elections. There's no presidential elections. Actually, there is a one congressional election, a special election in Utah's second congressional district between a Republican, Celeste Malloy, and the Democrat, Kathleen Reby. Although, that seat, it's a special election. A Republican held it before. Republican is expected to comfortably win in that special election as well this year. So there is one. But other than that, there's no congressional elections. But there are plenty of other important elections depending on where you reside, especially in Virginia, as I mentioned earlier. Like, I'm gonna, I don't know, I'll see. But I know all that stuff I gave about Virginia, it's just, you know, over audio, in your ears, or on YouTube. So it's it might be a little hard to decipher. So I'm gonna see if I can try and put something out in the next few days on our Xander's Facts social media pages as a guide to watching the results for these Virginia General Assembly elections on Tuesday night. I don't know. I'm not saying I will. I'm gonna try. Quit whining. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. But just keep an eye on our Xander's Facts social media pages. Instagram, Twitter, I don't care what it's called now. Threads, Facebook, TikTok, all those. Check out Xander's Facts and make sure to follow too. And to conclude this podcast, I just wanted to reiterate something that I said at the end of 
last year's elections preview podcast because I just wanted to remind everyone for the final time this year on the podcast to vote because as citizens of what I think is the greatest country on earth, the United States of America, the right to vote and to express our opinion is just that. It's not a privilege. It's a right. There are many countries on this planet where that right is non-existent, and there are actively people working in this country to make sure the USA becomes one of those. But in this election, and all the elections that you can, express your right, express your voice, and the way you do that is you vote. It is one of the greatest things about being an American. Never forget that. Like, especially if you're thinking about skipping out this year, especially this year, when it may not seem as big. Oh, the president's not on the ballot. Oh, my senator or my House of Representatives isn't on the ballot. Especially this year. No matter whether it's for president, Congress, governor, state legislature, your local city, county, town, district, parish, whatever elections, your vote matters. Like, especially in Virginia, we are going to see some seats go down to tens, hundreds of votes. Just a few votes are going to determine the outcomes of the Virginia legislative elections, which is why it is so important to vote. And I also like to remind everyone how you can vote, because remember, you have to be a U.S. citizen, you have to be 18 years or older on election day, and you have to meet your own state's registration requirements. Now, in some states, you can still register to vote up until and even on election day. You can vote with an absentee ballot by mail, although because we're this close to election day, that's probably not really an option anymore if you haven't done that. You can vote early in person some places, or you can do it the old-fashioned way, of course, and vote on election day in person, which is this Tuesday, November 7th, 2023, y'all. There's two links in this episode's description, vote.org and iwillvote.com. Both of those are going to give you all the information you need to be able to make sure you are able to vote, and if so, in which ways you can, and where if you are voting in person. I would highly encourage all of y'all to click at least one of the links and at least make sure all your information is up to date, because maybe they mistakenly took you off the voter rolls. You never know. So, there you have it, y'all. Our Listen, one of the best podcasts I love doing all year, our factual 2023 election guide. There it is. Those are all the facts I have for y'all this week on the Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember that if you liked all the facts that we had on this week's podcast, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, rate and review. Check us out on all the socials. As I mentioned earlier, follow us. And also spread the facts. Tell all your friends about the podcast, the newsletter, Xander's Weekend Facts, our Xander's Facts channel on YouTube, because all our new episodes, including this one, get posted to YouTube with a nice background. You can watch. There's QR codes you can scan for all of our other Xander's Facts stuff while you're watching. I love our YouTube videos. Go check that out. Go subscribe. Go watch. Like. Do all that stuff. And also check out the Xander's Facts link tree, which has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. All that stuff is all linked in this episode's description, episode 122. Y'all, thank you all so much for listening. That was a lot of facts. 
And so next week, I think I mentioned this earlier, but next week we are not doing a new episode of the Xander's Facts Podcast. I know, y'all. But listen, Tuesday night I'm going to be a little busy, okay? That is election day. But in two weeks, episode 123, y'all, a couple weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, we had our Xander's Facts NBA analyst, Hillbilly. Always love having him on the podcast. He came on to preview the NBA season, professional basketball. Two weeks, we are previewing another form of basketball we love on this podcast, college basketball, y'all. And listen, I know college basketball actually starts this coming Monday, the day before Election Day. So by the time we do our season preview, we're going to be a week and a half into the season. Thankfully, the biggest matchups of the year tend to be later in the year, so we're not going to miss too much. But just a little disclaimer there that our season preview is actually going to be coming in the second week of the season. But still, we're going to have all the facts you need to know about college basketball, whether UConn is going to repeat as national champs. I mean, listen, y'all, I've for two years in a row, I picked the national champion correctly in my March Madness bracket. That streak was broken last year. I'm going to try. I know it's not until March, but I'm definitely trying and getting that streak back starting up this season. So I'm excited to be talking college basketball, gather all those facts over the next two weeks, and share them with y'all with episode 123 in two weeks on Wednesday, November 15th, which amazingly, y'all, like I've said, fall has flown by. That week is, I mean, there's the 15th. That week we come out with episode 123. Next week is Thanksgiving week. Like, it's kind of insane. But we are going to have a Xander's Facts flashback next week, replaying an old podcast, which I know you're all going to love because sometimes we forget facts, and that's okay, but we get reminded with our occasional Xander's Facts flashbacks, which we're going to have another one of those next week. So also make sure to tune in, download that. But that is it. That is a wrap, y'all, on episode 122 of the Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to all the election facts we had. And we'll see y'all with episode 123 in two weeks. Electrocution.